1: Listeners note before we begin, the following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
0: At around 10.30pm on April 18th, Lisa and Lori George saw a glow on the dark horizon. It was west of their home in Highland Village, Nova Scotia, on the shores of the Bay of Fundy. Lori thought it must be a house fire, and a big one, too.
1: And we had not heard any fire trucks or seen any lights going by, so we decided to uh, drive down to have a look, see if there's anything we could do. And uh, when we got closer to the Forty-Pick Beach Road, there was a... Uh, and an ungodly amount of police vehicles.
0: Laurie had been a member of the Volunteer Fire Brigade in the past. He and his brother-in-law had a feeling that something wasn't right. They drove west on Highway 2, past Portopic Beach Road. Then they turned toward the coast, on a road just across the river. From there, they had a clear view of the back of Portopic Beach Road. They saw there was more than one fire. Lori took some photos on his phone. He heard popping noises, and because there are hunters in the area, he assumed it was ammunition going off in the flames. He didn't think it could be anything else at the time. After a few minutes, Lori and his brother-in-law headed home.
1: While we were standing on our back deck, looking down towards the the first large fire, two more large fires broke out in the same area, but in different locations from what, from what we can see. So that's when we went back down.
0: Laurie brought his wife, Lisa, with him this time. They drove back toward the fires. It was around 11 p.m. There were even more police vehicles in the area than the first trip. Some parked sideways, blocking the highway. This time, they couldn't even get close to Pick Beach Road.
1: And uh, the one cop came up and jumped out of the ditch and come towards our truck. It, like, scared that devil out of me. And he come up to my window and he said, wherever you came from, get back there immediately and lock all your doors. And so that's what we did. We hightailed, run, and turned ourselves around and came back and locked our doors. But the rest of the night...
0: It would turn out to be a sleepless night. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie. And this is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. Episode 2, Stolen Dreams. Last episode, I said I would take you through what happened that weekend, hour by hour, as it unfolded. But the first few hours were extremely chaotic. Police have been tight-lipped about what happened and when, leaving a lot of holes in our understanding of the timeline. What we do know is that Gabriel Wartman caused an incredible amount of devastation in a very short period. In episode one, we told you about Lisa McCulley, Greg and Jamie Blair, and Corey Ellison. But tragically, they were not the only lives lost that night. In total, 13 people were killed in Pic. So I want to take you back and introduce you to the rest of the victims. What Laurie George didn't know when he took those photos of massive fires burning on April 18th is exactly what was on fire. One of the houses that burned to the ground belonged to John Zoll and Joanne Thomas. They're one of the come-from-away couples who were living out their retirement dream on this little stretch of shoreline. John was a Vietnam War veteran who worked as a Russian linguist before starting a career with FedEx in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Joanne had moved to Grand Forks from Winnipeg, Manitoba, to attend university, and that's where they met in 1985. They had a whirlwind romance and got married the same year. They moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1987 and lived there for 30 years before they discovered Nova Scotia. In 2017, they bought the one-and-a-half-story home near the end of Portapique Beach Road. It looked out onto the river with stunning views of the tide rising and falling in the bay. John and Joanne quickly settled into their new home. They found a church community and continued their lifelong passion for volunteering by helping run a laundry program for people in need in the nearby town of Truro and by rescuing animals. They were supposed to be on a cruise in April, but the pandemic forced them to stay home. Not far away was Frank Galenchen and his wife Dawn. They built their retirement dream home on Orchard Beach Drive, which you might remember is one street over from Portapique Beach Road. The couple still had ties to Ontario, but had long planned to retire full-time in Nova Scotia. Dawn's family used to live in the area. Frank retired early and made his way to PortaPic to work on the house about 10 years ago.
1: He worked for a long, long time in a steel business, like designing structures and, you know, tanks and sort of stuff like that.
0: That's their son, John Farrington.
1: Then he just started, you know, he ventured into uh, just woodworking. The first house that they bought just happened to have a little woodworking bench in it, like in the rec room area. And I could remember, you know, he's got me in one arm and he's got a drill in the other arm, kind of just trial and error. And he turned out to be this amazing, like, a fabricator of everything from beds to TV stands to, I tell you, he could build you a house. That's how talented this man was. So he took a brand new house that they built and to make it my mom's dream home remodeled the whole inside with solid oak even to the oven chute with solid oak, the kitchen counters, the floors, the bar, the island.
0: Dawn was a dietary aide in a long-term care home, and she stayed behind in Ontario and worked toward her pension. John said the couple made the whole long-distance thing work with the help of their family. In fact, John and his brother are how they met in the first place
1: always caught my brother and I kind of shooting hockey balls and pucks at his car a few times. So he actually came knocking on my mom's door one day and said, you know, I notice your kids like to uh, rifle balls and pucks at my car. So they must like, like hockey. So where I work, I get free Maple Leaf tickets, you know, if it's any interest in that, maybe, maybe they'll go see that instead of shooting uh, balls at my car. So, you know, that's kind of how my mom and my dad. Got introduced.
0: John said his dad kept to himself and kept busy in between visits from Don. He could always be found in his woodworking shop just beside the house. He even made furniture and sold it in some local stores. To spend time together, Don would save up vacation time and head to Portapique about once a month. During this time, she moved in with her sons in Ontario, first with Ryan for about five years and then with John.
1: Five years together here, you know, I've seen ups and downs that, you know, I've watched with her, you know, saying my dad, because it's not easy to to have a relationship for 10 years like that, where you, you're you flying back once every other month kind of thing for a week. And then, you know, you're learning how to be married again. And she's seen, you know, ups, ups and downs with me, you know, it's, that's, that's why literally, like I tell everyone, I have a 16-year-old son myself, but, you know, my mom was my best friend. I tried so hard to make sure kind of everything was perfect for her. I threw uh, a surprise birthday bash for her last birthday down here she didn't know about, and then I threw a going-away party just about a few days, you know, uh, before she went away. So even to the morning, you know, she, she, we, uh, we did our wake-up the day that she moved, hugged and kissed goodbye, and.
0: Dawn's retirement finally came in 2019, and after that going-away party, she headed to Nova Scotia for good. This was where the Galentians would spend... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They're golden years. A dream, a decade in the making.
1: I can just picture my dad's face when he saw her come down for the first time and he knew like she's here for good. It's just sad that, you know, she, she only got to experience for you know, less than a year.
0: Both couples' retirement dreams were cut short. Don and Frank's house, like John and Joanne's, burned to the ground on April 18th. As far as we know, none of them were close with the gunman, Gabriel Wartman. So why would he set their houses on fire? The truth is, we don't know for sure. As we told you in episode one, Police sources think he may have set off on a rampage around Portapique after his partner, Beth, escaped her restraints and hid in the forest. Mercedes Stevenson, the Ottawa bureau chief for Global News, said police sources are struggling with the horrors of what they saw that night. But I've been told that that the scene that they came upon, even that limited scene initially, was so horrific Uh, It was the worst that they had seen in their careers. And some of these are very experienced officers who who have served uh, for many, many years. Her sources have told her what they think happened when Wartman lit those fires. They've seen a lot of horrible things, but it was sort of the scale of the violence and the intensity of the violence, um, and, and the belief that they have that Wortman was
1: actually lighting these houses on fire to drive people out and then execute them. Sort of the
0: unthinkable cruelty and cold calculation behind that. Uh, not to mention you're looking around, it's dark, things are on fire. A peaceful neighborhood turned into a war zone. As police arrived, they found bodies on the roads they were trying to understand what was going on, and in the confusion, they held back emergency services like ambulances and fire trucks to make sure more people weren't hurt. As they began to search for the shooter, they didn't yet know that he had been on a manhunt of his own. It's believed Greg and Jamie Blair were some of the first victims of Wortman's rampage. After they were killed, sometime around 10 p.m., Their youngest boys stayed hidden.
1: After he left, they had hidden the chicken coop, and apparently he drove around the loop a few times before the kids would leave the chicken coop. So they stayed until they didn't see any more lights, and then they ran next door.
0: The Blair boys hid with Lisa McCulley's children until help arrived. They survived, but they weren't the only ones home with their parents in Pic that night. At the far end of Orchard Beach Drive, where the Blairs lived, there's a little cross street called Caboquid Court. At the intersection, there were some handmade signs pointing to homes tucked into the trees. One of them said, Friar Tuck. That was a nickname for Aaron Tuck's father. And over time, it became a nickname for Aaron too. In some of his Facebook photos, you can see that he's got it tattooed across his stomach. Aaron doted on his 17-year-old daughter, Emily, and his wife, Jolene Oliver. Emily was in grade 12, and she was getting ready to graduate in the spring. Then she planned to go to trade school. Aaron and Jolene were really hard workers. They met in Alberta and moved to Nova Scotia several years ago to be closer to Aaron's family. They spent their first years in Portapique living off the grid. The house had solar power and batteries, and the only source of heat was wood fire. They put in a lot of work on the house and the yard and only had it connected to power in 2019. They were hoping to move to Cape Breton, a bigger center where work would be easier to find. So they tried to sell the house. In the summer of 2019, they thought they had a buyer Gabriel Wartman. One of Aaron's friends told police that Wartman offered $18,000 for the property, well under the forty-eight dollars or $58,000 Aaron was asking for. Aaron's friend said that it led to an argument between the two men. After that, the idea of leaving town was on hold. By April 2020, the family was settled in their community making the most of this stay-at-home order issued because of the pandemic.
2: Cheers!
0: Cheers! Have a good
2: time with your family. This is what it's all about. We never get this chance again. So one more time, stay the blazes home! Woo!
0: Yeah. Stay the blazes home. That became a bit of a Nova Scotian catchphrase this spring. The premier said it during a COVID-19 update as he pleaded with people to take the pandemic seriously. One thing people were doing in that spirit was sharing videos in a Facebook group called the Ultimate Online Nova Scotia Kitchen Party COVID-19 Edition. If you're not familiar with the term kitchen party, it's just an East Coast house party. But what really makes a kitchen party special is the music.
2: So, your contribution to the COVID kitchen party.
0: Herbie McLeod. Wake us. All right. That's Emily, playing a tune called In Memory of Herbie McLeod. It was shared on Facebook by her proud dad. Aaron and Jolene had a 1977 Pinto they'd been fixing and rebuilding for years. They planned to give it to Emily for her 18th birthday in October. They never got that chance. Down the road from the tux was a small blue house that belonged to Peter and Joy Bond. They were a retired couple who had moved to Portapique from Chester on Nova Scotia's picturesque South Shore.
2: They just wanted to be close to the water. Uh, around Chester at the time, real estate was, the prices was crazy. And when they found that, that home there in Portapec, uh, you can't see the water from the doorstep, but five, you can hear at high tide, you can hear the waves, sit on the doorstep and hear the waves. And five minute walk from their doorstep, you have your toes in the Bay of Fundy. Peaceful spot. Um, it's a gorgeous spot.
0: That's their son, Harry, who still lives on the South Shore. We sat outside next to the coast on a summer day as he told me about his parents. Peter and Joy were married for more than 43 years, and they still completely and truly enjoyed being together.
2: Mom was 70. Dad was 74. They're same as two 17-year-olds. They went out in public. They were hand-to-hand walking down the street.
0: Joy loved lighthouses and bagpipes. And over the years she had amassed a collection of spoons representing all the places she and peter had been during his career as a long-haul trucker
2: you know when she's doing dead trucking every pretty much every estate or wherever they stopped she'd have to pick up a spoon
0: that's their youngest son Corey. he and harry both spent time with their dad in the truck
2: uh he he, he was driving truck before i was born and then he uh he drove the truck for quite a while, and then uh, he wanted to be home, be a father. And uh, so he, he took it down to a different occupation, and then once we were old enough to take care of ourselves, and uh, he was missing driving, so he went back to truck, and then mom did a lot of traveling with him. It was, it was definitely a, a different son and dad relationship in the truck. It was yeah. um, at home. <laughs> Sometimes you couldn't spend three days together and you were chewing at one another. And then being in a truck for two or three weeks at a time, um, there was no getting away from him or getting him getting away from you. It's, uh, it was a, a, there wasn't a moment in the truck that I wanted to get away from him. So it was a whole different happy. But when, uh, when Mom was in the truck with him and them two was together, he was, he was in his place. That he, didn't, was,
1: he didn't want to come. It didn't matter when he came home.
2: Then. He was just... They were just, enjoyed being together.
0: This last year, the Bonds were talking about moving again. They didn't mind being on the road, but wanted to be closer to their sons.
2: Especially, uh, especially mom. But they were, they were both missing their family. Um, uh, missing their grandkids and, uh, and they become great grandparents. So it's, uh, they were talking about moving back, um, Within, within the year or two years but uh, unfortunately that's not going to happen.
0: They knew most of their neighbours in Portopic, including Gabriel Wortman.
2: Knew of them. Yeah. Not not as a friend or nothing like that. But they definitely knew who he was I mean they've been down there for 15 years right. Right? and there's only two or three dozen houses in that little community so you basically know who lives where but uh, they wasn't he was one to have parties or whatnot in his warehouse, or, or they weren't, the, they wasn't the party people.
0: Yeah,
2: um, right. kind of. Quiet, keep to the self, and, and, and enjoy a uh, piece of quiet, and, and uh, their company together, so.
0: So Harry said Joy and Peter were home together that Saturday night when he came to their door. He killed them and their neighbors, Aaron, Jolene, and Emily. Harry thinks Wortman could have headed for those houses on his way out of town. We don't know for sure. But Jolene Oliver's sister told me she doesn't think that sequence of events is right. Tammy Oliver McCurdy told us that no one in her sister's home called 911 that night. Her niece, Emily, was texting her boyfriend. And Tammy said he told her that Emily stopped replying right around 10.07 p.m. She's convinced that Wartman went to her sister's house early in the rampage. Maybe because he had butted heads with Aaron Tuck before. Maybe he was looking for revenge. She said if Aaron had heard gunshots and suspected trouble, he would have done everything he could to protect Emily and Jolene. Tammy thinks... He never got that opportunity. So you can see that sorting out the timeline of events in Pic that night has been difficult, even for investigators. One of the challenges in trying to understand what happened that night is that nearly all of the witnesses were killed. But there were two key witnesses who were able to give police crucial information about what was happening early on. And because of them, we have a good sense of when the gunmen attacked Don and Frank Galenchen. Their story is laid out in court documents that Global News and other media outlets have been fighting to unseal. Shortly after 10.26 p.m., 26 minutes or so after the first 911 calls, there were two RCMP officers on Portapique Beach Road. As they tried to get a handle on what was happening... They were met by a car speeding out of the area. The couple inside said they had been shot at by a man who was driving what looked like an RCMP cruiser. Definitely a marked car. But the shooter was not a police officer. The man said he thought it was a neighbor who shot him. One he didn't know very well, a guy named Gabe. He knew Gabe had white Ford Taurus cars, including one that he had been calling his police car. He had been working on it for a long time. I've talked to this man, the only person who survived being shot by Gabriel Wartman that night. He doesn't want to be named, and he doesn't want to talk about what happened. He said he doesn't want this to be the only thing he's known for in his life. I respect that, and we've agreed not to name him. But he would turn out to be a crucial first witness for police, who were trying to figure out what was going on in the chaos. Here's what he told them He and his partner had seen a fire burning at Wartman's cottage first. Then they noticed another fire at his garage, the warehouse on Orchard Beach Drive. We think this was around 10.20 p.m. They called 911. They went to check out the fire, and on their way there, they passed what they thought was an RCMP cruiser in the driveway of a little blue house. That was Don and Frank Galenchen's dream house. As they drove past it, further down Orchard Beach Drive, they saw the warehouse was engulfed in flames. They called 911 again. Then they turned around, On their way back, they noticed that the little blue house was on fire too. The car was still there. The fire in the Galantian's house was spreading quickly. As they came closer, that RCMP cruiser pulled up beside them. The driver pulled out a handgun and started shooting. Those two witnesses got away. They found a real RCMP officer on the next road. All of this had just happened, and police were right there. So why couldn't they stop him? That's what the Galentian's son, John, keeps asking himself.
1: And what we were told is that's where our first responding officer was. And uh, they decided to gather as much intel and provide first aid on this gentleman instead of that officer that's literally you know 30 seconds away from the shooter just going there you know and uh the police tell us and they tell the family you know they they kind of their rule of thumb is they have to tend to the wounded first kind of thing and you know they they didn't know where the shooter was because i guess as his property was burning they were uh they were hearing gunshots going off That was ammo left in his household. So I'm being told that's where police were sent to because that's where they heard the gunfire. But, you know, I'm also thinking you have this gentleman that was shot that's also telling you where he spotted this person. So why aren't you just going there? Instead of, you know, letting them continue about to escape
0: and he did escape. What police didn't realize that night, as their operations were getting underway, is that Wartman was already driving away from Pic. He had a front seat full of guns, a trunk full of gasoline, and a disguise that may have helped him slip right by the police.
1: I know nothing would have saved my parents, nothing would have probably saved anyone on that street that got murdered that that, that night. But you know, he shouldn't have been able to drive through.
0: The man who survived being shot that night also told police that he and Wartman drove away in opposite directions after the shooting. He drove up Orchard Beach Drive to PortaPic Beach Road and Wartman was heading toward the coast. Orchard Beach Drive is a dead end. If you look at the area on a map, PortaPic Beach Road, where the police were, seems to be the only exit. Based on that theory, if Wartman was to leave town, he would have to turn around and go past the police. Except it wasn't the only exit. We know that Wartman found another way out that night. You see, at the end of Orchard Beach Drive, about one kilometer past Wartman's warehouse, is Cobequid Court. If you turn left on that, you can see the entrance to a field. It's a blueberry field a very common site in the Portapique area. Along the western side of that field by the tree line is a well-used path that's almost a back road. It's possible to turn onto that path, drive north away from the coast, and all the way to another road called Brown Loop. It's a direct path to Highway 2, bypassing RCMP members who were flooding into town on Portapique Beach Road police believe that is how he got away. RCMP originally said a witness saw a vehicle driving through that field nine minutes after they got on scene at 10.35 p.m. That's just 35 minutes after people started calling 911. We don't know exactly what time this rampage began. Wartman set four buildings on fire and killed 13 people before making his escape. And it's been difficult for many people to understand how that could happen so quickly. I've also been wondering about that timeline. Well, as it turns out, through our work investigating this story, we have learned that the police theory about his escape has changed in the last several months, including how long it was between the time RCMP officers first arrived on the scene and when the gunman left Portapique. We'll go into that in detail in the next episode. And as a massive police response got underway in Pic that night, most Nova Scotians were asleep, completely unaware of what was unfolding. An hour and a half after the first 911 call, the RCMP sent out the first public notification about what was happening on Twitter. At 11.32pm, the tweet read, and I quote, RCMP-NS is responding to a firearms complaint in the Portapique area, Portapique Beach Road, Bayshore Road, and Five Houses Road. The public is asked to avoid the area and stay in their homes with doors locked at this time." End quote. A firearms complaint. This tweet would be the last communication from police for eight and a half hours. And by then, an already unimaginable situation had gotten worse, much worse. But still, there are questions that remain unanswered. What exactly were police doing inside Porta Pic during those first two hours of Wortman's rampage, and why was he able to get away? The horror of that night grew as the devastation in Porta Pic came into focus for first responders on the scene. For the families of victims, it would be an agonizing wait for information.
2: I close my eyes at night. I can't, I can't shake it. I, I try night, night overnight. I close my eyes a pictures of the pair of them being shot.
0: That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Special thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca 13hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13hourspodcast. If you have a question about this episode and series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13hours at CuriousCast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes, too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.